We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, and that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take your seats. Let me welcome you again. Uh, My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if I have not met you yet, I would love to get to greet you and learn your name after the service. This morning, we are wrapping up our vision series. And for the last two weeks, we've been talking about why we exist as a church here in the city. And uh, we've been looking at this very famous prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. It's his longest recorded prayer in, in uh, in all of the Gospels. And what does he pray for? He prays for the church. And so it's been a great chapter for us to kind of look at together as we talk about why our church exists and what is Jesus's vision and purpose for the church. Um, next Sunday night, th- this is not in the announcements, so if you, if you tuned out in the announcements, I want you to hear this. Uh, next Sunday night, we're going to gather in this room at 6 p.m. for a night of prayer and worship. And the reason we're doing that next Sunday is because we, we wanted to kind of finish up our vision series by praying together. The truth is, we could talk about our vision until we're blue in the face, but unless God shows up, unless God works, um, it's, it's all a big waste of time, honestly. I mean, Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. We need God to move. We need God to work. We don't just need strategy. We don't just need vision. We need for a fresh blowing of the Holy Spirit uh, in a church, in our church, and through our church. And so we're going to gather together next Sunday. And if, if you consider yourself a part of this church family, um, I would beg you to come to this. Um, it's been said that you, you, one of the metrics for uh, where a church is is how many people show up for the prayer meeting, actually. And uh, you have an opportunity next week to come and join us as we pray together. If you feel like prayer is not something you're very good at, don't worry. You're not going to be asked to pray out loud. The best way to grow in prayer is to actually 
practice doing it with other people. So I hope that you'll come join us next Sunday night. Um, What we've said in our series this far is this. I just want to keep reminding us of this, is that our vision is to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the city and for the unconvinced. There's three parts to that, church, city, unconvinced. Two weeks ago, we looked at the church piece. We said that the main purpose of the church is the glory of God. We exist as a community in this city for God's glory. How do we do that? We do that by being a community of people who know Christ, who are changed by Christ, and who are one in Christ. Last week, we looked at the city piece. And we said that in this prayer, we learned from Jesus that we are to be in the city, but not of the city, for the city. To be in the city means we are to love the city like God loves the city. God loves the city. If you're a follower of Jesus, he wants you to love it too. We're to be in the city, that means we're to love the city, but we're not to be of the city. What does that mean? It means that we are to live countercultural lives in this place that are so different, that embody for people the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God, which is not sort of kind of like the world. It is actually going in the exact opposite direction. Why does God call us to live lives like this, to not be of the city? Well, it's for the city. To be for the city means that we exist to bless the city and to serve the city. And that's why you've, uh, if you've been around, we've been highlighting every single week these different ministry partners, City Team and Harbor House, and today this video on MLK Elementary in West Oakland. Some of you heard, you, you heard Amanda talk about this carnival and you heard Steph Curry, and you think, oh, no, you're, all you're thinking is, is Steph Curry going to be at this carnival? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm going to be there. Okay, how's that? I'm going to be there. The first service thought that was a lot funnier than you guys, <laughs> learning how to recycle jokes in this two-service deal. Um, uh, so today, we come to this unconvinced piece. We want to be a church for those who do not yet believe. And if you were here this morning and you do not identify as a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you were here. We want to be a church that is for people like you. And I think a lot of times the assumption is that church is only for people who believe. Uh, William Temple, who is a theologian, he said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. That is always true in theory, but it is not always true in practice. The reality is, is that churches often just kind of grow because they attract Christians. Christians kind of, we kind of move around from one church to the next. And that's how churches grow. That's not how we want to grow. That is not our hope as a church. Our hope as a church is to be a place that attracts people and makes space for people who do not yet believe. What is going to make us a church like that? What's going to make us a church for the unconvinced? That's the question for today. Three things I think we learn from this text. Number one, there's a heart that we need to see. There is a unity that we need to embody. And there's a love that we need to experience. All right, that's where we're going today. Let's first talk about a heart that we need to see. Look what Jesus prays in verse 20. He says... My prayer is not for them alone. Who is Jesus talking about? 
when he says them. He's talking about the disciples who are in the room with him. He's talking about those who already believe. He says, I'm not, my prayer is not for them alone. But then he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus, first he prays for those who already believe. But then he prays for those who do not yet believe. And friends, this is the heart of God. It is a heart that longs to see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The reason that being a church for those not yet convinced and, and, and actually hopefully seeing them come to embrace Jesus, the reason that is so central to our mission is because it is so central to God's heart. And, you know, many people actually have a problem here at this point because they say, wait a minute, it's cool for you folks at the corner of 17th and Franklin to believe what you believe. But you should not push that on anybody else. You, you don't, don't evangelize, don't proselytize, don't share. No, no, no. You keep it to yourself. It's fine for you to believe it. Don't push it on someone else. What you believe is true for you. What I believe is true for me. What's really interesting is that, or actually I think more concerning is that it's not just secular people who would say this, but many Christians would actually say this. I, I saw a study this week from Barna, and they asked Christians, Christians, not just general people, but they, they, their sample set was Christians. They asked them if they agreed or disagreed with this statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. That's a statement. It's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes they will one day share the same faith. 19% of boomers, okay, that's people between the ages of 59 and 77, agreed with that statement. Gen Xers, that's people between the ages of 43 and 58. 27% of Gen Xers agreed with that statement. They said it's wrong to share your faith and hope someone else will come to believe it. Millennials, people between the ages of 27 and 42, 47% said it is wrong to share your faith and hopes that someone else will believe. The, Gen Z wasn't even in the study, okay? I mean, in Gen Z, 50% of Gen Z identifies as nuns. I don't mean like Catholic nuns. I mean, I mean religious nuns. They identify with no religion whatsoever. There is an increasing percentage of the population, including Christians, who would say that evangelism is wrong. But what is so interesting about this is that none of us live this way. None of us live this way. You know, what do you do when you find a great burrito in this city? You say, you, you tell your friends about it. And if, I want you to tell me about it, because I'm all about the burritos in this city. This is what we're all doing. And it's not just with burritos. We even do it with religion. Mark Lilla, who teaches at Columbia University, about 20 years ago, he wrote uh, an op-ed in the New York Times. It was called Getting Religion. And he told a story about he was riding home on the subway one day. 
and he ran into this guy who was actually on his way home from the Billy Graham crusade. It was a Billy Graham crusade in New York, and this guy had just become a Christian, and they ended up in a conversation, and Mark Lillo was shocked, because, not only because this guy had become a Christian, but because he was a very educated person. He was actually a, a business student at Wharton at the time, uh, at Penn's business school. And Mark Lillo thought to himself, how could someone so brilliant believe in something so naive? And then this is what he writes in the article. He says, I felt a professorial lecture welling up in my throat about the history and psychology of religion. I wanted to expose him to the church's ambiguous role as incubator and stifler of human knowledge and the theological idiosyncrasy of American evangelicalism. I wanted to warn him against the anti-intellectualism of American religion today and the political abuses to which it is subject. I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to take to help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, perhaps even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him that his dignity depended on maintaining a free skeptical attitude toward doctrine. I wanted to save him. The curious thing about skepticism is that its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question, and I don't have one for myself. I love his honesty. I mean, here's what he's saying. We're all evangelizing something, even irreligious people, who think that religion is silly and perhaps even harmful, we're all evangelizing something, but most of us don't know why. We don't know why we have this impulse. Well, Guy Kawasaki tells us why. Guy Kawasaki, that's probably a name you don't recognize. Guy Kawasaki was hired by Steve Jobs in 1984 when Apple was just starting out, still called Macintosh, and nobody had really heard of it. And he hired Steve, a guy Kawasaki, to make Apple popular. The title that Guy Kawasaki was given was Chief Evangelist. That was his title for the company. Today he has become known as the father of, uh, the father of, um, Evangelism marketing. And, and this is what he said. He said, there's a difference between evangelism and sales. Sales is rooted in what's good for me. Evangelism is rooted in what's good for you. Lots of people say, how do I become an evangelist? 90% of the battle is picking the right thing to evangelize. If, if it isn't exciting or doesn't excite you, it cannot be done I resent the concept that people think that I can evangelize anything. I cannot. Most stuff I don't care about. So I can only evangelize a few things I really love. And when I was evangelizing Macintosh, I believed that I was bringing good news. <laughs> Here's what he's saying. Every single person, regardless of where you are on the religious spectrum... Every single one of us has something in our lives that we see as good news and we think that it is worth having in our life and so we love to tell others about it. Why does Jesus pray that those who do not yet believe would come to believe? 
Why are we seeking to be a church for those who do not yet believe in hopes that they might come to believe? It is not just because we believe we have good news. We believe we have the best news the world has ever heard. There is a God who created you, who loves you with an everlasting love, and you can know him, and there is no shame in your life that he cannot heal. There's no brokenness in your life that's too big for him. There's no obstacle in your life that's too great for him. He can bring hope to the hopeless, joy to the joyless, meaning to the meaningless. It is the best news the world has ever heard. And this is why Jesus prays for those who do not yet believe. And this is why we want to be a church for those who do not yet believe. What would a church like that look like? What would a community for for those who are not convinced look like? Well, it would look like an inviting community. We'd constantly be inviting people. We say, you got to come. You got to come. You know, we say this about Resurrection Oakland. We want every Sunday to be a good Sunday to invite a non-Christian friend. We'd be an inviting community. We'd be a safe community. We'd be a safe place for people to walk through those doors not convinced. Some of you have been in church context where you could not be honest about your doubts. You could not be honest about your questions. You could not be honest about your skepticism. That is not this church. This is a church where you are welcomed with all of those things. And it is a church where you can actually belong before you believe because we think the best place to wrestle with your doubts and your questions and your unbelief is in the context of Christian community. We'd be a safe community. We'd be safe in the sense that we would always assume there are people in the room who do not yet believe so that we talk to people who don't believe and not about them. We'd be a safe community. We'd be an inviting community. We'd be a humble community. You know why we would be humble? Because we would be a community of people who never forget the miracle of our own salvation. Do you know if you're a Christian, it's a miracle you say, well, you know, but yeah, but I was born into a family and they took me to church. And No. <laughs> there is no one in this room who is a good candidate or a better candidate than anyone else for the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian, it is a miracle that God has worked in your life. And we need to be people who never forget the miracle of our own salvation, who believe that if God can save us, he can save anyone. So that's the first thing that's going to make us into a church for the unconvinced, is there's a heart that we need to see. Here's the second point. There's a unity that we need to embody. Look at these verses in 22 and 23. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He's talking about the Trinity, the oneness of the Trinity. He says, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me. What is it that is going to convince people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent to save sinners? Well, here's what Jesus says. Unity. Our unity. 
He says the thing that will make us a church for the unconvinced, the thing that will make us a place where skeptical people are attracted to Jesus is not the quality of our sermons, and it's not the quality of our building, and it's not the quality of our worship. It is the quality of our unity. The book of Acts has so much to teach us about this because it talks about in Acts chapter 2 how the early Christians were so united to one another. They were so united that there was no one who was in need. They shared their possessions. They were so united that they cared for one another in times of need. And it says that they were so united. Listen to this in Acts chapter 2 verse 47. It says they were so unified that they enjoyed the favor of all the people, not just Christians. They enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So let's get practical here for just a moment. What does this kind of unity look like? What does it it look like? Well, it looks like, here's three things for us this morning. It looks like love across difference. It looks like perseverance and conflict. And it looks like care amid suffering. It looks like love across difference. I had a, a really good friend who came to our church a couple months ago. It was his very first time here. He's not a Christian. He's actually uh, a part of another uh, faith community, a whole other religion entirely. And he said, he said, I have never been in a religious service like that. He said, where, where I worship, the, the house of worship that I go to, everybody looks the same. He said, I, but that was not what was happening in that room. And you see, friends, the gospel is not just a bridge to get you to God. It's not just meant to be a ticket to heaven. That's how some of us think of it. It's just kind of a bridge. No, the gospel is a sledgehammer and it knocks down the walls that separate us and divide us, walls like our class and walls like our color and walls like our politics. And the gospel shatters all of those. Dr. King once said that 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. 11 a.m. on Sundays is the most segregated hour in the nation. And one of my great hopes is that we could rewrite that narrative in this little corner of the world that God has put us. That something different could actually take place here. That people would walk into this room and they say, wait a minute, What's, what is she doing sitting next to him? And what are they doing hanging out with them? I, I've, I've never seen something like this happen. That it's a community, we are meant to be a community of people who love one another across our differences. And when the world sees us, they take notice, just like my friend did. Here's the the second way we embody this community, perseverance and conflict. A lot of people um, treat the church kind of like they treat a dating relationship. You know, when you first start dating someone, it's really exciting. You've got all the butterflies and Everything is all good, right? But if you stick around long enough, you start to have conflict. 
the cracks start to show. You start to get disappointed. And so what, what, do you, what do you often do in dating? Well, you break up. And this is what a lot of folks do at the church. We show up and we say, wow, this is awesome. The music is great. Sermons, ah, you know, they're okay. I can tolerate them. I'm going to keep coming. And then this place is amazing. And you get butterflies, get the, the churchy butterflies. But then you stick around a little bit. And the cracks start to show. This is not a perfect community. I, I know this because I'm the pastor, okay? I, I started this thing. I'm pretty messed up. <laughs> this is a community where you stick around long enough, there'll be conflict. There'll be disappointment. And what makes us different in the church from the world is not that we don't have conflict, it's the way that we handle it. No, we forgive and forgive and forgive and we seek forgiveness again and again and again and we, we talk about things face to face, not behind each other's backs. And when we, and when we don't, we actually apologize. We're, we're, we, we, we persevere in conflict. We endure in conflict. That's what makes the church different. Here's the last thing is care amid suffering. Care amid suffering. Uh, One of the main metaphors in the New Testament for the church is uh, it calls it the body of Christ. And just think about that metaphor of a body for just a moment. Um, So I have a, something is going on with my knee right now and it is throwing everything else in my body off. My hamstrings, my back, my hips, every, everything is messed up just because of this one part. That, that's how a body works. It's that connected. When one part is suffering, the rest of it is suffering. The same is true in the church. The same is true in the body of Christ. When one person is in need or when one person is suffering, we don't say, not my problem. No, we say we are so united to one another that we care for one another. Gerald Sitzer, uh, he's a Christian author. He wrote one of the most helpful books on suffering that I've ever read. It's called A Grace Disguised. Gerald Sitzer, uh, years ago, uh, they were on a family trip. He, his wife, their four kids, and his mom. And in an instant, their lives were turned upside down. They were in a major car accident. And in the blink of an eye, he lost his wife. He lost one of his children. And he lost his mom. And what came out of that for him was an experience of care from the church unlike any he'd ever experienced before. This is what he writes. He says... Members of our church worked to provide us meals two to three times a week. And in fact, some of them offered to do this for a whole year. We were enveloped by the love of the body of Christ. I found myself asking, what would we do? Where would we be without the church? Fellow believers comforted us, served us, bore our burdens and encouraged us. They did not take the grief away. No one could do that. They did, however, make the grief more bearable. The tragedy and the events that followed showed me what the church is capable of doing. This this is what will make us attractive to people who do not believe. It's not by 
winning arguments, okay? It's not by outsmarting people. It's not by telling people how wrong they are and how right they are. It is by showing them a unity that they cannot find anywhere else or in any other community in the world. It is a group of people who are so tied together in the way that they care for one another, in the way that they persevere in conflict with one another, and in the way that they love one another across differences that people look at that and it is so compelling and they say, I want to be a part of that. Something is happening here that is not happening anywhere else. And the question is, is how are we going to become a church like that? Because some of you are saying, you know what? This all sounds great, but it is so ideal. And I've been a part of a lot of churches and I've never seen a church that does all these things. It is ideal, and this is not a perfect church, but it is possible, or else Jesus would not say in this passage that it is. Because Jesus is saying this unity in the body of Christ is what will actually change the world. It's possible. So how are we going to become that kind of community? And that brings us to the last point, which there is a love that we need to experience. Um, Philip Yancey, who's a, a Christian author, tells a story of one day in his adult years, he went to visit his elderly mom. Uh, his dad had died just a couple months after he turned one years old. His mom had been a widow for his whole life, basically. And one day they were sitting and they were, they were looking at family photos together. His mom started pulling out all these pictures. And they came across this one picture of Philip Yancey as an eight-month-old. And this picture was, it was crumpled and tattered and it was all beaten up. And he said to his mom, you know, why, why did you keep this one? I mean, there's, there's a lot better pictures of me and that are in much better condition than this one. She began to explain to him that she had kept that picture as a memento. When Philip Yancey was 10 months old, his dad was diagnosed with polio. And he was placed in an iron lung. An iron lung is what they used to actually treat polio patients. It, it was like this capsule uh, that went around your whole body from your neck down and it helped you breathe. And for the last four months of his life, his dad lay in that iron lung on his back. He was, he was actually paralyzed from the neck down. He was unable to see his family. They couldn't come visit him because of his illness. And so he asked his wife for a picture of his young son, little Philip. And this was the picture that she'd given him. And Philip Yancey's dad asked the, the nurses to take that picture and to, to jam it into the metal knobs that sat just in front of his face. And for the last four months of his life, every single day, that was the picture that he looked at. He stared into the eyes of his little son. That's what Philip Yancey writes about the moment he learned about that photo. He said, I've often thought of that crumpled photo, for it is one of the few links connecting me to the stranger who was my father. Someone I have no memory of, no sensory knowledge of, spent all day 
every day thinking of me, devoting himself to me, loving me. The emotions I felt when my mother showed me the crumpled photo were the same emotions I felt one February night in a college dorm room when I first believed in God. Someone like my father is there, I realized. Someone is there every day thinking of me, loving me. It was a startling feeling of wild hope, a feeling so new and overwhelming that it seemed fully worth risking my life on. What if God thought of you like that? What if God loved you like that? I mean, is that even possible? You know, some of us in this room, we feel so unlovable. We have, we've done things in our life or we've had things done to us in our lives that no one else knows about, not even the people closest to us, maybe not even a spouse. And we think if anybody really knew me, they would not love me. You know, others of us in this room, we were born into this world and we have felt unnoticed our entire lives. We have felt on the bottom rung of society. You felt unseen. You have felt unheard. You have felt forgotten. Some of us in this room, we wonder if if I, if I was not here tomorrow, would, even, would anybody, if I was not in this world tomorrow, would anybody even notice? And many of us in this room, many of us in this room, we say, you know what, I, I, I believe God loves me, but we actually really don't. We just, if we're honest, I mean, if we really believe God loved us, our lives would have looked so different this last week. What we, when we say we believe God loves us, what we really kind of deep down believe is that God just sort of tolerates us. That's what most of us think. Could God love us like this? Could God think of us like this? Well, here's what Jesus says in this passage. He says, God is thinking of you. When Jesus prays in verse 20, then the world will know. Sorry, when he prays in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who is he talking about? If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, he's talking about you. He was thinking about you. He wasn't just thinking about you 2,000 years ago. You know what Ephesians 1 says? It says that he was thinking about you before the foundation of the world. Jesus says God is thinking about you, and he says he's not just thinking about you, but he is loving you. Look at verse 23 here. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you, even as you have loved me. You've loved them even as you have loved me. How much, how much does God the Father love you? Jesus says he loves you even as he has loved Jesus. What does that mean? He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Well, how much is that? 
I can't put it into words for you this morning. All I don't know. All I know is that it is more than I can tell you. It's more than any human being could, could articulate. That's how much God loves you. Jesus says, I mean, how much does God the Father love God the Son? Jesus says in verse 24 that the Father loved him before the creation of the world. Matthew 4 says that the Father is well pleased with the Son. Hebrews chapter 1 says that the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory. How much does God the Father love God the Son? It's indescribable. It's, it's, I can't tell you how much. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you how it works. The Christian gospel says that the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, God sees you just as he sees Jesus. He says that all of your sin and disobedience gets counted towards Jesus, and all of his perfect obedience gets counted towards you, and that means that when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect and righteous as he sees Jesus. See, God God loves you not as much as you deserve. God loves you as much as Jesus deserves. And how much does Jesus deserve? It's it's indescribable. It's more than I can tell you. It's, It's more wonderful than I could ever make it sound. It's more infinite and unconditional and unceasing There's more joy and delight in God the Father over you than I can tell you this morning. And what the Christian gospel says is that right now, what is God doing right now? Have you ever thought about this? This very moment, here we are, we're sitting in this room, we're singing these songs. What is God doing right now? Here's what God is doing right now. God is loving you right now as much as he will ever love you for all of eternity. He, right this moment, he is loving you not an ounce less than he will love you for all of eternity. What, what difference does that make? It makes all the difference in the world. Because the more that you and I get this into our hearts and into our minds, the more we will become individuals and the more we'll become a community who share God's heart for those who do not yet believe. If we fail to experience the love of God, it all starts with the love of God. If we fail to experience the love of God, we will not share this good news and we will not be compelling to outsiders. But if we experience the love of God, friends, we will have a hard time keeping our mouths shut. (laughs) We will have a hard time saying, I have the best news you've ever heard. And I know it sounds crazy. But there is this God who created me and who knows me and who loves me. And he can do the same for you. And I'm telling you, when we become that kind of, that kind of community, we'll have to go to a third service, which sounds exhausting right now. 
but we won't be able to keep people out of this room. We'll be a community that isn't just telling people that with our mouths, but we'll be living it with our lives. We will be a community that embodies that love through our, community, through our unity, and people will be so drawn to it. But see, it all, it all starts with the love of God, which is why we come to this table every single week. Because we need to be reminded of God's love. We, we, are, we are forgetful people. We need to be reminded of God's love over and over and over again. And God says, you don't just need to be reminded of it, you need to experience it. You need to eat it. You need to drink it. You need to put it in your mouth and taste it and digest it. And that is why God brings us to this table every single Sunday. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this meal. You know how forgetful we are, and you know how suspicious we are. How suspicious we are that, of your love. That it could be this real, this true, this unconditional, this full. And so would you help us today as we come to this table, as we eat this bread, as we drink this cup, would you help us to know your love? It is the best news we could ever hear, and we need to hear it again. So help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.